Father God, once again, uh, we come before your words in humble submission to your voice. Lord, we pray that we'd hear that voice tonight and be changed by the power of your spirit. Amen. Uh, you'll need uh, 2 Timothy. Uh, open again, I'm afraid. It's 1,196. Um, I guess I shouldn't be telling you this, but there's only uh, me and about 80 or 90 of you, uh, so I guess that's not too bad. Um, I overheard a conversation yesterday, which amused me a little bit. I was at the university, and I uh, overheard a student talking to her mum on the mobile phone. So as you do, you only get one half the conversation, don't you? Uh, and uh, the bit that made my little ears perk up and start listening in was when she said, Mum, you know that man who lives in Norwich and we had a big row about last summer? You know, the one you told me never to see again? Well, well we found out he lives in the street just, uh, just opposite me. And we decided to meet up, and he's really nice. And then, then there's a bit of sort of garbled, you know, uh, speaking on the other side of the phone, which I didn't hear, obviously. And she says, no, 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 he's not. He's, he's a month younger than me. Then there's another question. And she says, yes, he works in the pharmacy. Another question. Mum, what do you mean, what is he into? I don't know. Another question. No, he lives at home with his parents. Another question. I don't know, but his younger brother went to uni. You can sort of work out the sort of questions that his mother, uh, her mother was asking her about this young man that she had started going out with. Uh, I'm surprised that she didn't ask for a full CV, a bank statement, and two references to go with it. But, but it's interesting just to reflect on what a mother looks for in the boyfriend of her daughter. Now, some of you have been looking around at different churches recently, some of the students maybe, uh, and some of uh, others of you as well. And it would be nice, wouldn't it, if your mother had the same concerns, in a way, about the leaders of the church you were going to and you decided to settle in as that mother had about the girl's boyfriend. It'd be nice if your mother phoned up and said, so, uh, what's the leader of your new church, uh, what does he teach? What's his life like? Who does he hang about with? What's he motivated by? And is he gentle? You see, it's those kind of questions that we're looking at tonight. What should we expect to see in our Christian leaders, especially as they are at the moment when times are tough? As we know, there's lots of uncertainty in the world, uh, lots of people facing many, uh, many difficulties. Um, the EDP said yesterday there was um, a third of people in Norfolk and Suffolk fear for their jobs at the moment. So times are pretty tough. So before we look at the question of what should we look at for our Christian leaders, we need to turn to chapter 3, which is where I want to begin, where Paul describes the environment in which Christian leaders are expected to work, and it's we are expected to worship. So chapter 3 and verse 1. But mark this, says Paul, there will be terrible times in the last days. It's not a particularly uh, cheerful thought, is it, to start with? Uh, what does it mean exactly? Well, the first thing is, we need to realize, is that we are already in the last days. You see, the term here is not referring to some future event or, or a millennium or perhaps uh, the days just before Jesus returns back to earth again. It's a term which has described the fact that the new age has already begun ever since Jesus came the first time. 
So these are the last days uh, before Jesus comes again. But we've been living in those last days for at least 2,000 years now. And none of us know how long they are going to continue. And that, of course, means that we need to be patient. We need to be patient, waiting for the return of Jesus, but not so patient that we lose uh, or we forget to be expectant. So we need to keep on praying that Jesus would come back again. But we are in the last days, and Paul says there will be terrible times. Note that. It doesn't say that it will be terrible all the time. It just says that there will be terrible times or seasons, good times and not so good times, bad times and indifferent times, but terrible times we know there will be. And according to, the, to Paul, these terrible times are caused by people, or more specifically, by people who have misdirected their love. So you see, just looking down there, instead of loving others, they will be lovers of themselves or money. And that will make them boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. Verse 3, it says, they will live without love. Literally, it means without normal human affections, something that makes us fundamentally human, the ability to love. It's a long way from God's design for us. And if we live like that, it will make us unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, no friend of goodness, treacherous, rash, and conceited. Verse 4, there will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Even when outwardly, in some ways, they are religious people. They have a form of godliness. But they deny the power of resurrection by refusing to grow in the gifts of the Spirit, in the fruit of the Spirit, and in good works. So this is what we, expect in the la- we are to expect in the last days. In other words, now, what we are to expect is that people will be, have misdirected love. And it's not the people out there. These people are the people in the church. You see, if they were the people out there, then Paul could not tell us to have nothing to do with them. In verse 4, she says in verse 4, because in fact we know Jesus told us to have everything to do with people out there, didn't he? He sent us out to the harvest field. He spent his own time with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was no, um, uh, not somebody who said, have nothing to do with those people. Quite the reverse. But Paul says if they are in the church, they're hearing the gospel and they still choose to misdirect their love, then we have the right then to have nothing to do with them. Which is why ultimately we have to do, have some form of church discipline and it talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5. You see, nor did Jesus come to that have any, have, have any time for religious people, did he? Who loved themselves more than God. He certainly told them uh, a few things, a few choice words. Now, add into this rather unsatisfactory picture of the church in chapter 3, the ungodly teachers that, if you were here last week, we talked about last week. And chapter 3 goes on to describe those who hawk their false teaching around door to door, worming their way into homes, it says, going from person to person or from small group to small group, saying, hey, listen to this, this is really new and exciting. And what you end up with in those cases in verse 7 is people who are always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. You see, they have the love of novelty, but their minds become so distracted and befuddled that in the end when somebody says, what is the truth? 
they're not quite sure. The answer just doesn't come. So they're always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Or as we said last week, if it's, tr- if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. The good news, though, is that these terrible times will come and go. Again, as we saw last week, the church is built on a firm foundation, isn't it? And in the case of these teachers and, and, and the heresies that come along in the history of the church, they come and they go. Some of them come back again, and then they go and they come back again. But all in, in the end, they all go. Their folly, verse 9 says, will be clear to everyone. Their folly becomes obvious. But the gospel survives, and it will survive for as long as it takes for Jesus to come back again. So that's what we should expect. Misdirected love, terrible times, ungodly teachers, people who oppose the truth, folly eventually being exposed. So in this context, in this environment, what should we expect from our leaders? What should we expect from teachers in the church to help us through all of this? Well, if you missed last week, we talked about how Timothy was to avoid ungodly teaching. Paul reminded Timothy to speak and remind people again and again of the ancient gospel truth. He reminded Timothy to work hard on his interpretation and teaching of the scriptures. And in a way, it reminds us to listen hard to sound teaching and to have that discipline too. Well, tonight, here's the second trap that our church leaders need to avoid against the background of the last days. And that's the trap of unworthy company. Have a look down to chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21. You see, Paul illustrates this with the picture of a large house. It is a large house, a mansion perhaps, and they've got their best crockery, their gold and silver, which is brought out for special occasions, and they've got their everyday stuff made out of wood and clay. You know, I read somewhere that the Queen's breakfast is served in plastic Tupperware. I don't know whether that's true, but it's a nice thought, isn't it? Because we often think of the Queen only eating at state banquets. But the point is that teaching the gospel is a noble thing. It's something worth much more than gold or silver. But if we spend too much time with people who put their teaching skills to ignoble use, they teach false lies, teach falsehood, then we will be influenced by them. You see, if you spend uh, as much time around young children as I do, then you'll know that it's very, uh, very, very quickly your clothes become covered in sticky jam and spilt milk and dry poster paint and all those other things that children have on their fingers. Everything they touch or eat seems to just end up on your trousers or on your shirt or whatever. And you get contaminated almost by, by the children and what they're doing. Now, we don't necessarily want to avoid children's company, do we, altogether? but we do need to go and cleanse ourselves of their sticky influences. And in the same way, we might not want to avoid certain people altogether, but we do need to be aware when we're being wrongly influenced by them, and we need to cleanse ourselves from that influence. See, often their influence is about trying to make secondary issues as important as primary issues, fundamental importance to primary gospel issues. I can think of one church in Norwich, that when you begin to read its statement of belief on the website, you think, yeah, I can, I can go with that. I, I agree with every, every single word of that. And they're really important things, Christian gospel um, uh, things that I wouldn't want to give up. And then you notice a scroll bar on the website. So you scroll down, and the list just gets longer and longer of what they believe. 
and what you need to believe to be a member of this church. And in the end, there's, silly, there's things down there which some of them you think, well, yeah, okay, I could go with that, I can believe that. Some of the others you think, no, I'm not going there. And some of them you think, well, the Bible's just not clear. We don't know what the answer is on that. So they're bringing secondary issues into their core beliefs, and they're expecting us to sign up to them all. Other times it might be wrong moral ideas, and Christian leaders sometimes need to cleanse themselves from the influence of people who say this or that is wrong or this or that is not wrong. So they can go. So we need to cleanse ourselves of their influence, so that we can go about our work as leaders, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Verse 22 says we should align ourselves effectively with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We need to align ourselves with those people. Thirdly, though, Christian leaders should avoid the trap of ungodly behaviour. Verse 22 again: Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Faith, love, and peace. It's a famous verse, isn't it? Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Last Thursday, I went on a course organized by the diocese, and it was all about personal safety for the clergy. So don't mess with me at coffee time. No, it wasn't about that at all, actually. But it's actually, it was actually very entertaining for once. There's a really good speaker. It was run by this big ex-policeman who arrived on his motorcycle. And it also worked as a verger at Wells Cathedral after a time from the police force. And one of his main tips was, when things turn nasty and things get a bit tense in your study, then don't be afraid to leg it. If necessary, offer them a cup of coffee whilst you're inching towards the door, uh, uh, being prepared to run out of the back door of the house and hide in the garden shed. If it turns out to be no, for no reason at all, then a little embarrassment later on uh, is much better than a few days in hospital, was his reasoning. He also told a story about a time when he was sitting uh, near the back of Wells Cathedral as, as the verger, and a visitor, a lady visitor, arrived late for the service. So he immediately got up, found an extra chair for her to sit on, put it down, and told her, don't worry, don't worry about arriving late. It's not a problem at all. That's perfectly all right. After the service, the lady came up to him and said, Thank you so much for giving me that wonderful welcome. Nobody has ever welcomed me like that before and said it doesn't matter for arriving late. I just want to thank you. So, so can we go round the back of the cathedral? I want to play with you. This is the evening service, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, good. I'm sorry, he says. Yes, yes, she says. Come round. Come round the back a moment. I want to play with you. At that moment, his wife appears. So he quickly pulls her over and says says to this lady, I'm terribly sorry, but I have something I've got to do over there. This is my wife. She'll help you with anything you need. And then he legs it out to the left. When he catches up with his wife later on, he, uh, he explained to his wife his rather strange behavior. She said, she wanted to play with me, he said. No, she didn't. She just had a bit of a lisp, and she wanted to pray with you. But he did the right thing, didn't he? He legged it. He got out. He fleed from any evil desires that he might have had. Flee from the evil desires of you. But actually, when Paul is writing here, he's not just talking about the sex, the obvious. In fact, uh, John John Stott writes, he says, the evil desires of youth include self-assertion as well as self-indulgence. Self-assertion as well as self-indulgence. So what he means by self-assertion is that brashness, that super self-confidence, the feeling that you can win any argument at all under the sun, even especially at 2 o'clock in the morning. 
that you often find in younger people. It's just the sort of person who will engage, as verse 23 says, in foolish and stupid arguments which produce needless quarrels. You see, in Paul's writings, we are constantly being shown both a negative to avoid and a positive, positive to embrace. So we are, not to deny, we are to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. We are, put, we are to put off what belongs to our old life and to put on what belongs to our new life. We are to put to death our earthly members and to set our mind on heavenly things. We are, cru- we are to crucify the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. John Stott concludes, It is the, re- the ruthless rejection, the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other, which Scripture enjoins upon us as the secret of holiness. So I just wanted to stop and ask this question. Are we negligent in the fleeing or are we negligent in the pursuing? You see, my guess is that many of us here have got used to uh, fleeing from evil desires. Perhaps we know that as part of our Christian walk is avoiding certain books or websites. Perhaps we're already cautious about how we relate to people who are not our husbands or wives. Perhaps we're careful about how much we drink and what we say. I sincerely hope that that's true. But perhaps, whilst we're doing that, we've forgotten to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. See, how much of our lives is intentionally, and intentionally, I think, is a key word here. How much are we intentionally pursuing righteousness? So some may be negligent from fleeing, and indulge their evil desires. Others of us may be negligent in our pursuing of righteousness. Well, if you're struggling with either of these, then perhaps it's time to come and seek prayer and support. So come and speak to me or a friend, or go and join the prayer team after the service. So Timothy, as a Christian leader, must avoid ungodly teaching, unworthy company, and ungodly behavior. But in verses 24 to 26, Paul turns away from these negative things and negative warnings and gives Timothy some positive advice about his character and secondly, about his motive. And that's where I want to finish today. So first, the Lord's servant must be gentle. His character must be gentle. Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone. Yes, he must be able to teach, but he must not be resentful. In a previous life, when I was dealing with the unions a lot, it was quite common for them to come into my office and shout and scream quite a bit, and then walk out and discuss slamming the door behind them at crucial parts uh, of our negotiations. I think it was all part of their training and the way they, uh, they acted. Only on one occasion did I get so angry and upset that I banged my own table, marched out of my own office, slamming the door behind me and leaving two uh, shocked union officials and my shift manager um, sat around the table in my wake. I had to eat some very humble pie after that little incident and apologise to them for my very unmanagerial behaviour. But my anger really was born out of resentment. Why did I have to go for this rigmarole every time I wanted to make a decision in the office? See, once in a while a manager of a public corporation can get away with something like that if they apologise. But the Lord's servants must never be like that. They must never be like that. They must be kind to everyone. 
the word kind or gentle. It here means mild. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 2 by Paul to describe the apostles and how they lived among the Thessalonians gently, like a mother caring for her little children. You see, there's no sense in which being kind means not standing your ground and arguing your case. After all, in Galatians, in chapter 2, we read about Paul opposing Peter to his face. And the letters to Timothy speak about fighting the good fight. No, we must continue to teach, we must continue to challenge either poor behaviour or poor doctrine. But it's just that in our keenness to win the arguments, we must not lose the person. You see, we've all been there, haven't we? The, the scent of final victory is so appealing, isn't it? That it's only afterwards that we reflect we've won the argument, but we've lost a friend because of the tone of voice we've used or the domineering argument that we've used. It's a hard one. It's a very hard one. It's so hard to get this right. Sometimes I think over the last couple of years I feel I'm too gentle and I fail to instruct. Other times... I fear that I've gone for instruction and failed to be gentle. And I apologise for both failings in my own leadership. Neither is right. We must be gentle, but we must instruct as well. There's a series of poems planted within the book of Isaiah, known collectively as the Servant Songs. You can find them in chapters 42, 50 and 53 of Isaiah. And there the Lord's servant is portrayed in Isaiah as a teaching, as a teacher. For the Lord gave him the tongue of those who taught, and he used it wisely. He knew how to sustain with a word those who are weary. So meek was he in his ministry that he would never shout or make a noise, and so sensitive that he would deal gently with people whose courage had been bruised and whose faith burned low. He would never break a bruised reed, or quench a dimly burning wick. And when people rose up in opposition to him, he did not resist or retaliate. He gave up his back to those who beat him, his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard, his face to those who spat upon him. And eventually he allowed himself to become like a sheep, silent and unresisting, led to the slaughter. And Jesus of Nazareth was just such a servant, wasn't he? In the reading we had from Matthew's Gospel this evening, Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. And anyone who wants to be a Christian leader or teacher needs to have that same meekness and gentleness of Christ. Secondly, verses 25 and 26 tell us the motive of the Lord's servant. So those who oppose him, he must gently instruct Why? In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And when they come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. You see, the motive of a Christian leader is simply that God might grant people both repentance and freedom from their captivity. You see, teaching falsehood, leading people astray, it's not just a mistake, it is a sin. It's taken so seriously that it carries responsibility and repentance is required. It's God who does this. But as so often in God's work, it's done through the ministry of his gentle human servants. We are called to save people, not to thrash them and leave them them for dead with our arguments. 
Left to themselves, they will never be able to be free. It's almost as if they've been drugged or intoxicated. Literally, Paul says that our gentle instruction needs to sober them up or bring them to their senses. And in that way, we pray and we hope that they will repent and know the truth. So if your mum phones up and says, what's this new church like? I hope that you can say, we can avoid ungodly teaching, we can avoid unworthy company, we can avoid bad behaviour, and that we are, above all, gentle. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for those times when we have either taught and instructed but failed to be gentle or when we've been gentle and failed to instruct. Lord, help us to strike that balance. Help us to get that right in the power of your Spirit. Help us to discern when to speak and when to be quiet, when to encourage and when to challenge. Lord, help us by your Spirit to follow your ways. In the name of Christ.